Um, two weeks ago, I began a uh, uh, lo- looking at this. We said we were going to look at it for three weeks. So two weeks ago was the first week we looked at it, and then today and the next week we will finish up um, some at least initial thoughts about Romans 8. We could probably spend um, a whole year in Romans 8, and, and maybe before uh, this morning's done you'll feel like you've spent a whole year uh, in it. Um, but anyways, I, I want to begin there in just a moment. But, but So the one other thing I wanted to do this morning, um, so do we have a, a picture do I have a, a picture to put up there? I want to, I want to um, talk about some friends of mine for one second. And um, so there they are, Dan and Kay Bowen. Um, so some of you, I'm, listen, most of you probably know Dan and Kay Bowen. And um, what you might not know, may or may not know, this is going to be their last uh, Sunday with us, um, well, with the Tyler address anyway. I don't in any way anticipate this is your last Sunday at Bethel, um, unless Jesus comes back before this deal's up. But um, so uh, Dan and Kay, uh, and listen, I'm not making a big deal. I promise I wouldn't make a big deal. But I do want to say a couple words. So they've been at Bethel um, for 37 years and some change which is pretty remarkable because Bethel's only 38 years old, all right? And um, the, uh, so I will say this. Uh, so we came here, Leslie and I, 12 years ago, and one of the first couples we met were Dan and Kay, and they were, uh, listen, I'd known about Dan Bolin from uh, the uh, of Pine Cove, uh, legendary status of Pine Cove. And my sisters had gone there, and they, you know, said, "Oh, Dan, you got to meet Dan Bolin." So I was—I mean, I was a little intimidated um, in the beginning to meet him. And then he's six nine, and uh, Andy's awesome. And then I met Kay and, and Leslie, and I met them. And they—I'll tell you what—they have loved us uh, these last twelve years, and have been um, such good friends to us. And I know for many of you that is your—that's um, your experience as well. And so for 37 years, I would say you've given your life to those around you. And so just wanted to tell you this morning that you're going to be missed. You've shown us how to love. You've shown us how to give. You, um, and one of the statements of our vision statement is we want to be a people who live generously. And you've modeled that for us incredibly shown us how to grieve and to laugh and to live life to the fullest. And um, that's, that's a treasure to us that, that is, um, makes us better as a church. So thank you very much. I um, was thinking about this, and it dawned on me. As I think about the New Testament, he, here's what I realized. There, um, th- there's... See so the Gospels, the Acts, all the all the letters. You know what? They're never. You know what? At least I hadn't found it. Maybe Dan, you know of one, and I don't. But there's no goodbyes in the New Testament, which is pretty great. I mean, you think about the Gospel of Mark, um, uh, where it probably ends in chapter 16, verse 8. Um, although that's a different discussion for another day. But anyways, uh, 
It just ends with the resurrection. There's the resurrection, and it's as though Mark's saying, you know what? You finish the story. You, you, you finish out how this deal goes. Acts chapter 9 leaves us with, man, Paul in prison and, and teaching the gospel, and we don't find out in Acts what happens next. It's, it's as though you finish the story. And all of Paul's letters never says goodbye. See you soon, or grace and peace to you, or hurry up and bring me a blanket, or he never says goodbye. There's no goodbyes in the New Testament. So what I think that means is there is no ending to this deal. No ending to friendships, no ending to our love, and no ending to this life that we all have together. It just keeps going on and on and on for eternity. And I know you know that. And you uh, have modeled that well for all of us. And so, on this Sunday, I say grace and peace to you from the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thankful for you guys very much. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for our time in the Word. And Dan, I have prepared about three sermons all to give in this one morning, so you, you'll have some to, uh, to, to take with you. Uh, we'll, we'll do all of it. So uh, let's, let's pray together. Father, I thank you this morning. Um, looked at two pictures this morning of your grace and your faithfulness to us in the midst of our congregation. And so, uh, Father, we see seasons come and seasons go, and all of that is part of your design. You've known that from the beginning of, of time, from before the beginning of time, and that your, your idea, your, uh, your design is that as one season goes and another season begins, Father, you continue to raise up men and women in the midst of your body to serve your people to the end that we glorify you as we come to know more and more your love for us. So, Father, you have modeled for us, even in your scripture, there is no goodbyes. There's grace to you, there's peace to you, there's we'll see you soon. But Father, we have the security of knowing that this doesn't end. Our friendships don't end, our love doesn't end, and it goes on for eternity because of your grace and your peace. And so, Father, I just pray to celebrate my friends and be thankful for them and look forward to all that you're going to do in this next season of their life and the next season of ours here at the house. So, Father, we love you, and uh, we trust you with all these things. And would you guide us this morning as we look at your word? We, we need your help this morning by your spirit to make these words plain to us, not so only so that we understand them in our mind, but the Father, they get down deep inside of our hearts and our lives. And so we ask this, the only way we can, in Jesus' name, amen. You forgot to mention, Kay, you, you, uh, you were on staff here for a lot of years, leading children's ministry, and, uh, and ra- raised, uh, raised all my kids raised me for my, my child. So 
All right, so here's what I'm going to do. I want, so we started two weeks ago, and um, there was a little bit of a fire hose, and we didn't really come to any conclusion. We, we, we did, however, establish from the end of Romans 7 and then the beginning of Romans 8 that we have a problem, all right? And the problem in our life is sin, and sin is actually a bigger problem than, than we could have ever imagined, and there was nothing that we could do about it, and uh, sin... Um, reigned over us, if you will. We were, we were slaves to sin. It held us captive. It was our master. It was our Lord. It was our way of life. Um, and even as believers, we notice from the end of Romans chapter 7, we still struggle with the presence of sin in our life. Part of it is the, the reason Paul's going to say that is, so at, at the, in, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, and they eat of the fruit, and the consequence of the fruit is that surely you will die. Sort of there were two aspects of that death. One is that they would die spiritually to God. They would lose the relationship that they had with God. They would be cut off from God. The other aspect of that is that they would die physically, that their bodies would deteriorate, and that they would die because sin now reigns. Well, so when Jesus comes and he dies for our sins, and then we hear that truth of the gospel and we accept it, the Bible uses language like we are born again. We become new creations. The old is gone. The new has come. And there's a sense in which that is exactly right. Um, the old has gone. The new has come. And primarily what happens sort of at ground zero of the gospel in your life is that you are born again, you are made new, you are a new creation. And those are all very spiritual things because you now are no longer cut off from God. You, you now have a relationship with God. Paul will say it in Romans 5. You now have peace with God, whereas you did not before. Ephesians chapter 2 will say you were dead in your sins, but God has made you alive in Jesus Christ. So you have been born again. You have come to life. And that's the first installment. God's Spirit comes to live in you and brings to life in you a new creation. Now, there is actually a second part of this that we look forward to and long for. This is what Paul will talk about in Romans chapter 8. You'll hear the language this morning as we read it. But there is a sense in which we are spiritually now alive. We have been born again. The old is gone, the new has come. And at the same time, he says, you know what? We still walk around in these mortal bodies. The hope is that once these mortal bodies decay, once they deteriorate, once they die, we look forward now to the resurrection where our alive spirit is now reunited with a brand new glorified alive forever body and salvation in us is complete. And so right now we live with already the fact that we are born again. And we look forward because not yet has that already experientially been completed. 
there will be a resurrection. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I did a, uh, a funeral. And at, at funerals, I always like to say, um, if the, uh, you know, the, the, the body lays there in, uh, in the presence, that, you know, one day, this body will be made new. That it will, it will rise from the grave. It will be alive, made new. In the meantime, what happens is we, our bodies decay, our bodies die, then we, we are absent from the body, but present with the Lord. So we long for the day that we are present in the body and present with the Lord, fully alive forever. So that's the issue. And Paul is wrestling at the end of Romans chapter 7 with this reality of, hey, I'm, I'm a new creation. I'm part of the new age. I am part of the kingdom of God. And might I also carry around this mortal body where sin still has a presence, where life around me is still decaying. I live with two realities. I am a new creation. I am new in Christ. I have been born again. And I still drag around this old man and this old Adam. And there is this struggle that it creates in our lives. And as Christians, it is a struggle that it creates. And so at the end of chapter 7, we looked and we said, Paul, you know, he's looking at it and he says, Listen, I'm so frustrated about this. So it's beyond frustrated. Despair. I know something is different in me. I mean, inside of me and in my heart and in my mind, I long for God's work. I long to do the things that God desires. I long for the holy desires of God. And yet I find these other things at work in me. So the things I want to do, I don't end up doing those things. And the things I, I don't want to do, those are the things I end up doing. And he's, 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 he's in despair at this struggle, this tension of life in the now. And he cries out in, in chapter 7, verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, Paul is not being a, uh, just uh, platonic here. He's not going back to the teachings of Plato, that you know the, the spirit is good and the body is bad. That's not what he's saying. He's looking forward to, we'll see, he's longing for the day that not only is he alive spiritually, but he is alive physically. His, his body is redeemed and delivered. And not only has the power of sin been defeated, it has been now in our lives, but the presence of sin will be gone as well. So, so that's what he's saying. So he writes... Uh, chapter 8 to talk to us about life in the now. That life between the already and the not yet. And he's writing to believers. Now he's going to make a warning. He's going to say, look, here's the deal. Believers have the Spirit of God. They've been made alive by the gospel of Jesus. The Spirit of Jesus and he says the Spirit of God, the Spirit, it's Trinitarian language, and it's too hard to sort out on a Sunday morning. 
But in essence, we are in Christ, and Christ is in And so we now, though, have the power in us to live in the in-between in a way that we know the joy of being the children of God, even now. He's going to argue from 724, which is wretched man that I am, all the way to the end of chapter 8. And chapter 8 is where he's going for it. He says this at the end of chapter 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he said it's the, the peak of Mount Everest, what we said last week, and uh, it begins in 724, which is actually maybe the deep, deep in the thousands. Wretched man that I am. So um, it's his struggle. It's his struggle um, in life as a believer. And as believers, um, who hasn't known that struggle? As a believer, your reality is Romans chapter 7. As a believer, your reality is Romans chapter 8. And our desire is that Romans chapter 7 is less and less experience in our life and Romans chapter 8 is more and more experience in our life. So I want to recap real quickly what we looked at last week. So we have two great problems and one is that we are more sinful than we, uh, two great truths I guess of the cross. One is that more, we're more sinful than we could have possibly imagined. That's why Jesus had to die for us. The Son of God had to die for us because the problem was greater than we could have even imagined. And at the same time, it also tells us not only is our problem greater than we could have imagined, we are loved more than we can possibly fathom. That for God to send his son to die in our place, not only is our problem greater, but God's love is unfathomable to his son. So he says, very end of Romans 7, Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in beginning in verse 1, Therefore there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we can get a hold of this, we said last week, stunning, or two weeks ago, stunning and breathtaking truth. In light of what we deserve, because we have sinned, because we're sinners, we deserve condemnation. But thanks be to God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, we now therefore there is no condemnation. The gospel comes to us, and so that's how we're to hear God's word. I I should be condemned. Who will deliver me? And so the word is preached in Jesus' name that says, there is there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this is what we have to say. And then in verse 2, he goes on, it says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free, in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The, the principle of sin and death is the operating principle in our life. You're set free from this law of sin and death. You're set free in, it says, Christ Jesus. And you're set free from 
the law of sin and death. And in a few minutes, we'll see what we are set free for. We're set free in Jesus. We're set free from the law of sin and death, and we're set free for what will come in a few moments. What does freedom look like? Paul insists that the life of no condemnation is a life of freedom, and that's how he talks about it. In Galatians 5, he'll say, For freedom Christ has set us free. So stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The Galatian problem was Jesus set them free, gave them the Spirit, and then through false teaching they began to be convinced that the Christian life itself was some new form of slavery. Now listen, Paul can use the metaphor of slavery when he talks about, listen, we're slaves to righteousness, we're slaves to Christ. Martin Luther is the one that said to, to be a slave to Christ is royal freedom. You know, to have the Lord is to be a free creature if that Lord is Jesus Christ. So, so what we mean is this. So, so we're set free from the law of sin and death. We're set free in Christ Jesus. So whatever we say about the Christian life, it looks like it is a life of freedom. So we don't want to think about the Christian life. You know, maybe some people think about it sort of operationally as the Christian life. Uh, you know, listen, we, we find some people in bondage. Um, you, you, you take the, the magic word or magic formula of the gospel that, that you know, it, that takes people, they hear it, and it takes them into the, a realm of a relationship they can never have on the own. So, so, the, so the gospel gets you in. So we think, you know, we don't want to think about it only as, listen, the gospel gets you in, and it's, it's the door that you, know, that you walk through that gets you in. But then on the other side of the door, there is this new life of bondage. I, I say this because I think I understood Christianity in my life a long time this way. Um, I mean, it's what I genuinely believe genuinely believed. I'm not sure anybody taught this to me, but growing up, it's, it's what I believe. Maybe it's what, it's what you struggle with. See, I really thought that the gospel, that God saves sinners in Jesus, was a message that was only for non-Christians, you know, and that helped them become Christians. What I did not understand is that the gospel is for Christians as well. I, I thought, you know, the gospel is how you got in. And then when you got in, you said, oh, okay, well, good. And then there's this really steep hill in front of you that apparently you've been asked to climb. And so I, I thought, you know, Christian life sort of gets you in and you spend your life trying to get up this hill. My experience was very much like that of the Greek tragedy, King Sisyphus, you know, spends his life trying to push a rock up a hill, and that rock continually rolls back down the hill. And that, that was life. And so when you begin to understand that, when you begin to understand the Christian life, when you experience the failure being flattened by the rock, and you cry out, oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to save me of this body of death? I think that's the moment we become as believers all ears for the gospel. Because Paul says, listen, what the gospel began, it sustains. And what it sustains, it benefits. It bears fruit. 
that's what he says in verses 3 and 4. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 real quick. He says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his son, his own son, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So what the law, the law couldn't deal with sin. All it could do was diagnose sin. All it could do was tell you what is right. It could tell you what is wrong. But the law can't remove sin. It, it, uh, it, uh, uh, only, only God can remove the sin, and he did it by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned it in the flesh. And the condemnation of Jesus and the death of Jesus on the cross, sin was dealt with. What the law couldn't do, God did. So what does he do? It says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Might be fulfilled, you'll notice it's a passive verb. Be fulfilled in us. He's going to describe, go on to describe life in the spirit, walking in the spirit. But for here, listen, it's a passive verb. It's not a verb we're the subject of. It doesn't say that we might fulfill the law by doing this. It's often read like that. He did this so that when we walk by the Spirit, we might fulfill the law. It doesn't say that. He says that the law might be fulfilled in us. And then goes on to describe us as those who walk by the Spirit. And that's very so who is it that does the action? Who does the fulfilling of the righteous requirement of the law? Well, it's what God has done for us in Jesus and what God continues to do for us in the Spirit. And it's probably even more than that. If you went all the way back to Romans 1, the end of Romans 1, he says, look, you know, the, the righteous requirement of God, here it's the righteous requirement of the law, it's the same thing, the righteous requirement is that those who do such things, they deserve to die. Sinners deserve to die. And here we learn that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. And it just said the thing that happened in order for it to be fulfilled in us is that Jesus died. So Jesus died. The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled. And the penalty of the law, the death sentence announced over sinners, all of that has been executed in the death of Jesus. The thing that's been hanging over our heads, hanging over humanity, the sin, since it entered the world, if you eat of the tree, you'll surely die. That has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So it's a passive verb. Someone else is doing the fulfilling. Now, get to the description of this new life. Not, not the form of life under an old written code, we'll say back in 7-6, but the new way of the Spirit. So look with me. I'm going to begin at the very end of, of verse 4. He says, so that the, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And look at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. 
For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Stop right there. In the flesh, you have a total inability. You are hostile to God. You cannot please Him. Verse 9. You, however, if you're a believer, he says, you, however, believer, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Though though your body's dying, though it's dead because of sin, the Spirit in you is righteousness. And the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is also in you and will raise you from the dead. So that there will be a day that not only are you free from the power of sin, which you are now, but you'll be free from the presence of sin. So it's a dense passage in many ways. And there's a clear contrast run through the whole thing. Flesh and spirit, walking according to the flesh, walking according to the spirit, life according to the flesh, and being alive according to the, uh, uh, to the spirit. Those are two different things. Having a mind set on the flesh which if you do, you'll be hostile to God and it leads to death, or having a mindset on the Spirit, which he says will cause peace and life. And hopefully, as you hear this, it's not simply saying, listen, one of those things used to be true about you, and now something totally true about you has happened and you leave the other behind. He says, look, giving life to our mortal bodies. In other words, well, we still have the mortal body. But we are invited... We are free not to do and are called not to walk according to the flesh. We are invited and we are called and we are free to walk according to the Spirit. And that's life and peace. But when you walk according to the flesh, it's death and pain and heartbreak and it's it's all these things. And you know. they're not true according to what God has done in Christ. They're only true according to the flesh. You set your mind on the spirit of life and peace. So you have this battle, these two realities at the same time. Living in the old age and as a new creation. But living as the old Adam, the old man. But yet you are connected to and indwelt by the second Adam, Jesus. dying body and a living spirit. Old English preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the moment we enter into this world and begin to live, we also begin to die. Your first breath is one of the last that you'll ever take. The principle of decay leading to death is in every one of us. Our bodies became mortal 
to dust you will return. For as our spirits are alive because of Christ, he has secured that. The ultimate destiny, though, we said of our bodies, is, is not death. It is resurrection. And that's what he goes on to say. The spirit that dwells in us the spirit that empowers us, the spirit that makes us sons, the spirit that gives us Jesus can actually be a spirit that gives us peace in life. Paul is writing in Romans 8. It is descriptive of the Christian experience. And I said, yes, indeed. And Paul keeps the subject of the verbs um, the, the spirit is the subject of the verbs. The law is fulfilled in us because of what God has done in Christ, and he's doing it by his spirit. The, the resurrection of Jesus, even now, breaks into the darkness of this present age. This is something that is experienced, and it can be experienced. Okay, you with me so far? Let's make this practice. Um, Romans 7 can be a description of your experience as a Christian, and you know that. I do things I don't want to do. I want the wretched man that I am. It is saying that, listen, we're capable of tremendous evil. It immediately says at the same time, if you're in Christ, none of that can bring you into condemnation as regard to God. That's outstanding. place in Luke chapter 11 and uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples about prayer and he says this to his disciples it's an interesting thing he says um, if you then though you're evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your father so think, think about what he's saying there's a that's a whole nother sermon but just think about the you know he's talking to people that he loves these are his disciples he delights in them he's gonna die for them and unconditionally committed to him. He says, you know, I, I love you. I'll never forsake you. I'm unconditionally committed to you. I delight in you. But you're evil. That's what he's saying. I mean, to be able to say, we got to come to the place as believers, this sort of real place in our life, we say, look, I'm capable of terrible things, but I'm unconditionally loved. It's the epitome of reality. It keeps us from putting on a facade. It keeps us from turning to morality. It keeps us from judging our life by the good things we do. We are honest and say, look, no matter how well I have won today, I am capable of tremendous evil, but I am loved. I am unconditionally loved. I am saved by God who sent His Son, and there's no condemnation for me. And it's only when you can come to the place where you realize, look, there is a capacity for evil in me beyond what I can imagine, and it should frighten us. God sent His Son to die. So there is no condemnation. I am free to know Him. I'm free to know myself. That's freedom from the gospel. Gives you freedom 
to handle the battle that rages in you. You don't have to deny it or spin it or suppress it or make it impossible to even know who you are. Only by hearing, look, you're capable of terrible things, and Jesus says, I'm absolutely, unconditionally committed to you. That's the place where we all fall. We cry out. Paul is saying in Romans 8, listen, this can be the description of the Christian. I hope that you know that. It's not just Romans 7, it's Romans 8. Your, your identity, that's clear as a believer. You're God's beloved child. That's clear. And your experience, not your identity, but your experience, you'll know the battle that wages in prayer is that you grow more and more to understand and experience Romans 8. So how do we do that? Right, I'm going to begin that here, and then I'll, I'll finish it next week. But what are we going to do about it? So we usually what we do is we look and we apply willpower, or we make a list of some things we need to change, or some moral things that are right, and we, we make that list, and and we say we're going to live up to this new standard. We're going to clean up our lives. We're going to get it right. And then we'll be in a position to know God's love. But that's not what Paul says here. He says, look, your problem is that you're sinful beyond your wildest dreams. You're self-centered. You're self-righteous. And you can do that as well as a moral person as an immoral person. You can be a Pharisee who checks all the boxes and still not know the power of the Spirit in you. Or you can be a criminal who breaks all the rules and not know. The answer comes in verse 13. Look, look at it, what it says, 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He means that by living in the flesh, you're trying to be your own Savior. You're trying to be your own Lord. Instead of letting God be your Savior. Everything in life, everything your body does, your whole life does, everything in your life, all your actions, everything's controlled by an effort to be your own Savior. You're on a self-salvation project. We reinvent those all the time, don't we? So let me just throw some crazy, wild stereotypes out that probably will offend you, and I mean not to offend any of you, okay? But at one time, we'll reinvent ourselves. We'll read all the classics. We'll uh, turn off the TV. We'll fast from that. We'll just, we're just going to read and get smarter. We're going to intellectually save ourselves. The other is, man, we'll save our bodies. We'll, we'll fast and diet. And, and, and No, we won't eat carbs. Those are sinful. Well, we're looking for keto because keto saves us. Right, did I say that right? Somebody? I mean, obviously I don't know, but I, did I say it right? <laughs> well, you know what? We're just going to get healthy relationships. 
So we go to the Barnes and Noble, you know, while we still have a bookstore. And, you know, we wish it was called something other than a self-help section because we're believers and we know better than that. And how we save ourselves is we just we get better relationships. You know, we win friends, we influence people, we we need people, whatever it is. That's how we embark upon it. But that is not what Paul is saying. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. If you're trying to save yourself, particular self-salvation, that leads to death. What you have to do is root out, identify, destroy the particular way in which you're doing self-salvation. And then you live. So how does it work? What's the, what's the method? Well, careful to even say it that way. Some of you will write it down and go, oh, okay, that's what I'm going to go do. That's what I'm going to try to do. Recognizing and changing your mind. Maybe better what you mind. Verses 5 and 6, remember? Another way of saying verse 13. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. It, it is not standing there and saying, Okay, Spirit, put in my mind the things I should think about. It's not what it says. It says, minding the things, setting your mind on the things. What are the things of the Spirit, by the way? What's the Spirit think? Spirit mind say. It's not you. It's Jesus. The Spirit has been sent by God to witness, to proclaim, to exalt, to magnify the beauty of Jesus. To set your mind on the things of the Spirit is to set your mind on the beauty of Jesus. Having your mind and your heart and your imagination captured by the one who died for you so that you can live. I can finish this with an illustration. Maybe three. Uh, Tim Keller uses an illustration he uses all the time. The Chariots of Fire one. That's a great one. You know the story. Two British men, you've seen the movie. I'm going to spoil it if you haven't, but um, it's 30 years old, so it's time for you to see it. So there's two men, Harold Abramson and Eric Liddell. They, they won gold medals in Britain in the 1924 Paris Olympics. Didn't, you know, um, and, and, and when the story is told, and she's even in the movie, but Jenny Liddell is Eric Liddell's sister. She's the sort of main character in the movie, and she's still alive. Um, when the movie came out, they did an interview with her. Hey, what did you think about the movie? And she said, oh, I thought the movie was great. There's one thing that the movie didn't show, and I wished it had shown. And she says, the, the movie didn't show. This is when Eric, her brother, who's a, this world-class runner, 100-yard uh, dash, um, when Eric ran, she said he always ran with, a, with his face straight up in the sky and his mouth wide open. He looked like a crazy man. He always ran with his face smack up into the sky, facing directly up with his mouth open. He looked crazy. He looked eccentric. We worshipped him. 
about the movie shows. So Harold Abrams and Air Slater, they were setting their minds on the same thing. They, they wanted to run. They wanted to rent, win. They wanted to run and win a race, but for totally different reasons. In the movie, they said, Harold Abrams, they asked him, why are you running? And he says, he describes his 100-yard dash like this. He says, when that gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. What he's saying is, if I can only win this race, I can be accomplished. I can, I can be the athlete I want. I, then I'll know I matter. Then I can face the world because I've accomplished this thing. I've saved myself. What, what are you leaning on to say, I, if I could do this, I would justify my existence. He loves the bell, he says something to his sister in the movie. Jenny, God made me fast. When I run, I feel his presence. One guy is running to praise the Savior. He's running because he's saved. He's not trying to justify himself. The other guy is trying to be his own Savior. One guy is running because of sheer joy. Icing on the cake. If he wins, great. If he doesn't win, great. He's already means to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. So I'll pick up here next week. I've, I've said, here's a, so how do we do this? Let me give you a couple of things. How do we set our minds on the things of the Spirit? I'll say it this way. If setting your mind on the things of the Spirit is the exception in your life and not the rule, you'll never know Roman numeral one. You'll never know. It has to become the rule in your life. And how we do it is, I mean, the Bible's very clear. One of the ways is the Word of God. I mean, it, it's not how much it's not so much how much you get out of the Word of God all the time. It's how much the Word of God gets in you. The whole God's God's word, His design for His spoken word, it is not to make you a better person. It's to kill you, mortify the body of flesh, and bring you back to life. It brings you to a place you go, oh, I didn't even know how wretched I was. Oh, I didn't even fathom. J.I. Packer, A.W. Tazer, read some biographies of the saints. You'll see the essence of it. What's Kindle that's going on inside of you to set your mind on the things of the Spirit? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look in His full and His wonderful face. Things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory. Tell you what, when you begin to set your minds on the things of the Spirit, you'll see it everywhere. I'll give you an example, and then I'm done, I promise. Till next week.
if you if you picked up some Charles Dickens, you see it all over Dickens, I'm sure. Something beautiful about the struggle he writes. You know, Christmas Carol. You see the transformation of the hero. But there's at the end of the tale of two cities, Sidney Carton is this char- character, and he looks like another guy named Charles Darney, and been sent to death, sentenced to death. He's condemned. He's going to be guillotined. He's going to have his head taken off. There's a guy, Sidney Carton, and he breaks into the jail. He does this under the cover of night. Knocks Charles Darning out. Some of his companions take this man unconscious. They steal him out of the jail. Sidney Carton takes his place, puts on his clothes, and, and he waits to die in his place because he looks a lot like him. So the next day, <clears throat> there's this young woman, and she's also been condemned to die. She comes up, you know, thinking that she's going to see Charles Darney. And when he begins to talk, she realizes that that's not him. She sees his face. She realizes, oh, that's not him. So who are you dying for him? King James Version says you must mortify the deeds of the flesh. The false saviors steal it. When I hear Sidney Carton, yes, I'm dying for him. What a kind of mortifies this egocentricness in me. He goes on. Are you dying for him, he says? Are you dying for him? And he says, yes, for him and his wife. For this woman, he's also going to die. She takes hold of his hand and says, Stranger, it's going to be hard for me to die. If I could hold the hand of someone so brave and courageous and loving as you, I think I could take it. Man, substitutionary sacrifice, somebody How much more when the Holy Spirit shows you what Jesus has done for you to be able to put to death the things in you that are putting you to death. And you begin to die. Let me say with this drafting service, there's more to talk about. But just this. Set your mind on the things Father, we do come to you and we acknowledge in all honesty the struggle we have. 